Thank you. Thank you for that. Tonight we'll be continuing with this talk series on the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path is a, a traditional teaching that spells out the path that we're treading upon towards our freedom, towards our awakening. And I think for those of you who have been here um, the last number of weeks, we've covered a lot of those factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. The right view and right intention, right speech, right action. And tonight we'll be exploring this topic of uh, right livelihood, or what I like to call it is wise livelihood. As some of you were here last week, I think uh, Kathy mentioned sometimes how problematic it can be to use this word right because it can be associated with, you know, sometimes our, our other understandings of ethical integrity. So I, I really appreciate the word wise, or another way to translate the word is, um, is whole or integrated, so a, a kind of an integrated way of, of finding livelihood. And in light of this, I, th I think the question to ask ourselves is, how do I make my livelihood a part of my spiritual path? And when I use this word livelihood, I want to point out, it, it doesn't only include employment that you might have, but also really any of the activities that you're engaged in that, that are kind of securing the needs or necessities of your life, and possibly also kind of securing the needs and necessities of family or you know even community at times. So it's quite broad to think about this not only in terms of employment, but so many other aspects of our lives. And as I said, it's, it's because I find one of my tasks in terms of the spiritual life is how do I make the entirety of my life my spiritual path? And around livelihood, I find this so important because one is, I mean, if we just narrow it down to sometimes like work, work can be challenging, don't you think? <laughs> it, it, it poses us with all kinds of, of challenges. And in light of that, I want to pass this around. There's a whole bunch of copies of this cartoon that gives one example of what the experience that can happen when things build up at our job. So you can look at that and pass it behind you. We can be pushed to extremes when small things don't work out sometimes. <laughs> Maybe you feel on the ledge at times around small things like printers. I also want to give a caveat around this too, around um, just, let's say, stress in the workplace, just since I put that cartoon out there. It's, it's also important to remember, because so much of this path is 
uh, becoming curious. We come together to become curious about how this mind creates stress in my life, how it adds to the stress of the situations that I'm in. But there's a shadow side to it that we have to be aware of it. It doesn't mean that I ignore the stressors that are outside of me, that are, are causing the stress outside of me, the systems that are causing stress. For example, when they did a study, there was a, a meta-analysis study of looking at these other studies of workplace stress. They looked at 228 other research projects around it. And what they noticed is that the stress that employees were experiencing wasn't self-imposed. It was because of, you know, let me get this, lack of health insurance or threats to constant layoffs, of constant layoffs and job insecurity or lack of discretion and autonomy in decision-making, long work hours, low organizational justice and unrealistic job demands. Right, so, so it, how can we have a sense of the system within which we're living and also notice how my mind's reacting to it, but not ignoring systemic forces of suffering and oppression? And of course, there's a bigger picture to this because mindfulness has now been co-opted by a lot of corporations mm -hmm. for good reason, because then if they can lower the stress of their employees, they can work them harder. <laughs> so we're trying to to promote a different kind of mindfulness. I just want to point that out. <laughs> where, we're, where we're sensitive to systemic dynamics, whether it be in the workplace or other places. But yeah, it's, it's challenging. And tonight, there is going to be more of a focus on what my mind contributes to it, to, to, to stress when in my livelihood, but also how do I reflect on this world of livelihood? And that's what I'd like to begin with, is just reflection. And I think, again, Kathy went over some of this last time when she was talking about wise action or right action. The importance of non-harming on this path. And in light of that, it's asking ourselves the question, does my livelihood or even more broadly, does the way I am living, does it contribute to suffering in the world? Or maybe more specifically, does the way I make money or make a living contribute to the suffering in the world? To honestly reflect on that question, I find it important for myself. And the Buddha gives these, these five kind of classic domains of what he'd call unwise livelihood. And these were in his cultural context, so they're a little bit different maybe for us. And he says, what are the five? Uh, business and weapons, so the manufacturing of, of weapons to kill other human beings, or business in human beings, which would be because there's still slavery at his time, or... or um, prostitution or slave labor, or business in meat, so uh, butchering, business in intoxicants, and business in poison, again, poison used as a kind of weapon. And so what do you get from this list? It's, it's am I engaging in a kind of work or a kind of livelihood that's dependent upon harming others? And to reflect on that. And when I reflect on it, deeply reflect on it, I notice how complicated it really is. Mm 
You know, I could say, oh, here I am, I go around and I teach the Dharma. Isn't that non-harming? Yet I, I do take airplanes. I, I have a large carbon footprint as a result of that. That is a huge impact on our environment. You know, and how do I navigate that? How do I re reflect on that aspect of my livelihood? That's one of the things I appreciate right now. Many of us teachers are having this discussion of, of how do we uh, come to terms with that, be honest with ourselves, and at least ameliorate that in some kind of manner. So I think it's important to, again, maybe uh, this was spoken about previously, to, to not get so rigid of, is this right or <coughs> this wrong? Because it's more complex than that, how we live our lives, and how we're intertwined, and how our lives are interdependent with other other people and other beings, and how we impact one another. It's not about looking for perfection. It's looking for learning how to respond. Just as, you know, there's a, a big discussion now of, of us at least um, uh, having these uh, carbon offsets to at least do something in terms of, of a carbon footprint, just as one example. And I think it's also in terms of community that it's not so much that we do that to each other. That in some ways, it's being able to ask this question amongst ourselves, but to allow for a whole multiplicity of different decisions around that, because it can be so complex. You know, for example, I know Dharma practitioners that are involved in corporations that, that create weapons, and it's something that they've had to contend with. But we all have our complications in our life. It would be so, you know, oversimplified to say it's them that, that are doing something unskillful. How do I engage in it, or, or how do I not engage in that? How to keep that question alive so that our ethical integrity can deepen? That's one aspect of the reflection around wise livelihood. But I think there's the opposite, which is just as important, which would be maybe something like, how can I bring a positive influence into the world through my work or through the way I live that is meaningful to me? How do you bring some kind of positive momentum in this troubled yet beautiful world that we live in? <clears throat> Sam Cain uh, speaks to this. He says, There is no easy formula for determining right and wrong livelihood, but it is essential to keep the question alive. We have to stop pretending that we can make a living at something that is trivial or destructive and still have a legitimate self-worth. A society in which vocation and job are separated for, for most people gradually creates an economy that is often devoid of spirit one that frequently fills our pocketbooks at the cost of emptying our souls. Again, seeing how our lives are so intertwined with the, the lives of those around us. So how can I bring a positive influence into the world in this manner? 
And then I think there's an even, please come on in. There's some cushions over there, and there's a, uh, at least uh, two chairs open if you want to sit in the chair. There's a chair there. There's a couple chairs just around there if you just want to grab a chair, too. So feel free to join us. So I think the more important question, though, on the positive level in terms of this is how are you already bringing something positive into the world? And to me, this is the harder question. I mean, the other questions feel like they have an edge to them. But I, I do such a good job of not seeing the goodness that I'm bringing into the world every day. It's amazing. I, I can tell you all the horrible things I do every day. I've gotten really good at that. But I bet you every, one, every single one of you is doing something positive every day, whether it's just simply being kind to your coworker or not saying the thing that you really want to say to your coworker. <laughs> You're making a difference. And what is it like to actually claim that, to really savor that? As I, I'm sure I've mentioned before, this is a central teaching around ethics in Buddhism and around ethical integrity, is to savor the good things that you're doing every day. Because what that starts to reinforce is how good it feels to have ethical integrity. Boy, this feels so good to be kind. It feels so good not to say that thing I really wanted to say that would have been hurtful. Wow, this is so wonderful. All these small good things I do every day. Wow, I'm just going to take some time to enjoy that. So great. My wife and I, I, at night, we either, we vary it. Sometimes what you're grateful for or the one that has a gains over numbers. What, what are the good things that you did today? It's, so, it's such a wonderful way to go to sleep. Mm. We can always find something. Mm. This is so important for wise livelihood. Whatever your livelihood is, there's something good going on there. And your spiritual path is to notice that and to savor that, and to make much of it. Somebody suggested a bumper sticker that would say, Lord, please help me accept the truth about myself, no matter how good it is. <laughs> so important, this positive dimension of, of wise livelihood. And, and I think it's also important just in terms of the trickiness of reflecting on livelihood, just of, uh, in terms of how much choice we have around, for example, let's say the work that we're doing. We do have some choice around that, but I think it would be foolish to say that, that we can completely choose you know, whatever job that we want. I think that th that's a little short-sighted about the dynamics of how the world unfolds. There's all kinds of forces that can make that a really complicated endeavor. And I, I think it's important to bring that to the fore rather than just reflect on what kind of job should I have. That can just lead us in, into a dead end. I remember after I... Uh, left, I, I, was a, I was a monk. I was living in a Zen center for about six years. And I was a monk for uh, much of that time. So after I left, I, I was living in a small town and southern New Mexico, New Mexico called Silver City, New Mexico. And uh, 
living for six years, that lifestyle was, I really appreciated, but it, it was not the best career move of my life. <laughs> so, getting out from there, there was not a lot of options for me. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't skilled in any trade as far as that goes. And I remember going, and I, now I'm so grateful for the Department of Labor of going down there and just finding odd jobs uh, to do to, to get by of uh, kind of manual labor jobs was a, was a big thing. Uh, but even in the midst of that, there was a way of being able to bring my practice into those contexts, even if it didn't feel meaningful for me, or maybe it didn't have some idealized form of, quote-unquote, saving the world, or whatever you imagine a spiritual, you know, a job for someone who has a spiritual life has. There was always small things I could do. And I think this is really what I want to talk about, is how do I bring my practice into kind of whatever I'm doing? Whatever job or vocation or way of livelihood or the way I'm spending my time. Because there was so many opportunities. You know, especially around um, manual labor, there was one of the things I loved about Zen is that it was held up, there was such a big value on work meditation because of the physicality of it. And so to start to translate that over into jobs like that that I was doing was so helpful. And then I also was a substitute teacher in mostly in a high school, so you can understand <laughs> <laughs> that really tested my practice <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> if you remember, as I remember, what I did to substitute teachers, it's yeah. like it's like my it was just all coming back to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember in the mornings the. The, the feeling, it would be this torn feeling is, is I'd want the phone to ring to be called because then I would get paid that day. And I so did not want the phone <laughs> in terms of that. So, it, so how can you make that into your practice wherever you find yourself? This is so important. There's so many small things that we can, be, can do to bring a quality of mindfulness, mindfulness a quality of kindness or generosity to whatever we're doing. Such a rich arena, bringing the, those qualities that we explore here together. And as I said, this is uh, upheld so much in, in the Zen tradition, in Zen monasteries. For example, they say that, that you can tell the depth of Zen practice in at least Rinzai Zen monasteries depending on how clean they are because there's such an emphasis on, on orderliness and things like that. Not, not because of OCD or obsessive compulsive mm -hmm. disorder, but because of the value of, of work. For example, uh, actually when Kathy was teaching here, I was in Brooklyn and I was, at, I was teaching a course with a friend of mine at the Brooklyn Zen Center. And the layout was so fascinating of this Zen center because remember, it's Brooklyn. The, you know, rents are high and, you know, just finding a space like this is, is a, a, lot of, a lot of money. But they probably maybe had a, maybe a, a center, maybe quite sizable, maybe three, three times the size of this, maybe four. But I'd say a third to the half or, or to half of the space was designated for an industrial kitchen. And it's because in, in Zen practice, 
uh, cooking is upheld to such, uh, to such a high degree in terms of spiritual practice. And it was so fascinating to see this, this emphasis on cooking and work meditation and cleaning and sitting meditation. It's really quite inspiring to see the layout of that and the kind of the whole culture that was built around, uh, around that. Can you imagine right now what that would be like if you were to come here on Monday nights and we had half the space for a kitchen? Mm-hmm. Or we had, you know, which is common in, in the Zen tradition, sometimes when you go to even a, a nightly sit, there's a, there's a work period of 15 minutes or 20 minutes. You know, usually in the mornings, like Neat and Soji, where you have this time where everybody works. Wouldn't that give a different feeling of what we're doing here? Mm-hmm. Such a radical different feeling. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We're still looking for a space, so maybe we'll find a kitchen. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but I love it because it mixes up what our idea is of spiritual practice, what our idea is of what we're doing here together. And it's so beautiful because there's such a, a manifestation of generosity, especially around food and nourishment. So this is around wise livelihood. It's enfolding what we're doing in our lives, whether it be cooking or cleaning, into our spiritual practice, to uphold them as spiritual practice. That is something that pulls me away from spiritual practice. And then there's the other realm around work. And I just want to point out, I'm I'm just trying to kind of touch upon different facets. There's so many different uh, facets to this whole conversation. But I think another one that I find really interesting around wise livelihood is how there's a creation of a kind of identity around our livelihoods, especially around our work, which you've maybe experienced. And it comes, what I notice, both from within and then it's also conferred upon us in a way that sometimes we can buy into in some kind of manner. And what I find is that there can be, it can feel so confining if I identify too tightly with it because there can be an inflated sense of self-importance or a deflated sense of self-worth that can come with us depending upon how we're situated in terms of the work we do. I remember this in a, a few different ways. I was a janitor for a while, and it was amazing to work and go into these office spaces and just the sense of invisibility because of my position. Hmm. And this was further, uh, the biggest contrast is actually when I was, again, in Silver City, New Mexico, when I was, as I was saying, substitute teaching, doing manual labor, and then I got a contract uh, uh, with my partner to teach meditation at a drug rehabilitation center. So in the morning when teaching the meditation, I was seen as somebody, somebody as important who would come in and teach something. And then when I was doing manual labor or substitute teacher, all of a sudden I was nobody. And it was amazing to feel the difference that would happen just in a day of how I was being treated. And then of course this can get internalized in terms of this. And this is just a facet around work. Of course there's so many dimensions around this of how we create identity. Do you ever notice this around the work you do or your livelihood in terms of self-importance or self-worth or lack thereof, sometimes because of societal values or other conditions that are going on? And it's so reinforced here, 
just the, the narratives that we have around career and work. For example, what I've noticed often in this place, you know, we currently call the U.S., at least in some of the circles I'm in, and kind of, you could say in dominant culture, is it, it can be sometimes common to ask somebody, well, what do you do? What do you do for a living? Whereas when I was in Nepal, you would never ask somebody that. <laughs> the, the common thing to ask is, please tell me about your family. Mm-hmm. You'd always ask about your kids. Well, it'd be such a weird thing to ask about <laughs> their career. The, the, the family was upheld so much. And even if you look at you know, Nepali language, even strangers sometimes you're, you're, you're calling older brother or younger sister is some of the, the, the words that you're using even when you meet somebody, depending upon you know, your relationship to them. So family situated rather than career situated. But here in terms of this, especially this capitalistic economy, there can be such a force to shape ourselves around that. So again, these are some things that I think can be really helpful to reflect upon. And again, some of it, just to tie it into going into the sitting meditation, some of this reflection and some of my sensitivity to know how to navigate it is becoming, becoming curious and familiar with my internal landscape so that when I'm in these difficult situations, I'm on the ledge because of the printer. I can notice what's mm-hmm. going on. So tonight what we'll do is we'll, uh, again, sit in meditation, you know, kind of with a little bit of guided for the first half hour. Then I'm going to take you through a particular guided meditation, just to, to, which will be a kind of reflection. <coughs> and it's a way of reflecting. We should spend a couple minutes uh, talking about it now so I don't have to go over as, as much at the beginning of the, of the guided. A way of reflecting on our lives from a broader perspective. Just as I was sharing with you these different questions about how to reflect on your livelihood. You know, am I causing suffering? What are the positive things that I'm doing every day that are that I in, in even in small ways that I'm contributing to the world? But also I think there can be a way of getting a, a broader sense of how I'm situated to get a sense of, of what's most important for my life. And it's, uh, this will come from uh, the, the social activist and environmental activist, Joanna Macy, and also a, a, a Buddhist teacher, where she invites us to, to, mm-hmm. to get a sense of what she calls deep time. She uh, critiques part of sometimes what we teach, like teachers like me t- talk about, of just being in the present moment. And she thinks there's... <laughs> I mean, she's really into meditation, and she thinks there's something problematic about that at times, that construct, because it can be denying the past and all the things that have brought us to this moment, all the gifts that that have brought us to this moment, and also how this present moment, how we act in this present moment impacts the future. What are the gifts that we're leaving? What's it like to reflect on deep time in that sense, to broaden that? So we'll have a guided meditation after we sit for a while. Okay, so in light of that, I invite you to maybe stretch your legs a little bit, move around, and then we'll begin to sit in meditation together. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.